Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 6. This evening we'll be celebrating Rosh Hashanah, so that'll be at 7 o'clock tonight. This morning we'll be observing the Lord's Supper as we remember what he has done for us to grant us life and life eternal. But I'd like to take a few moments to speak from this passage as I've been sharing various aspects of our liturgy here at Beth Ariel. We looked at the lighting of the candles, the michomocha after we read the scripture. Um, <clears throat> today I'd like us to look at the Aaronic benediction, which is what we close our service uh, services with. And then we have the High Holy Days. We have Yom Kippur next Tuesday. Um, Michael Cohen will be here next Wednesday, uh, next Sunday. And we've got Sukkot on the 30th. Deb and Vince will be leading our worship then. And then beginning in October, we're going to study through the book of Daniel together. So if you want to start looking at that, you can. But in these next few moments, turn with me to Numbers chapter 6, beginning at verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Now, I want to share from this passage, particularly today, because as we take, a, as we observe the Lord's Supper together, we want to reflect on the great blessings that God has bestowed upon us. But this is just a, a amazing statement found here in the book of Numbers. Keep in mind that the book of Numbers is perhaps the second most depressing book in all the Bible. And yet this is one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Bible. Probably the most depressing book is the book of Judges. Because all you read is this cycle of events of individuals turning their attention to do what they would do that they perceive to be right in their own eyes. And our people never seem to quite get it right. You know, bad things would happen. They would then, uh, or I should say, they would uh, turn their attention away from God God would bring an enemy to judge them, and then they'd cry out to God for help, and the Lord would send a judge, a warrior to deliver them, and then they would give praise to God, and then they would turn their back on God. And this cycle is just repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. Book of Numbers sort of takes second place to maybe the most depressing book, because in this book, we read of how the Israelites failed to take the land when God had promised to give to them, and as a result, they wandered for 40 years in the desert until that entire generation that came out of the Egyptian bondage were destroyed in Egypt. So it's the story of Israel's demise in the wilderness and the struggles that they place. It's the story of their ongoing complaining to Moses of what they needed and how God yet always provided. And then tucked right in this book, right at the front end, is this statement that the, God, the Lord instructs the priests to state as they would bless the people with God's blessing. Take a look at chapter 6 and also chapter 5. We'll look at it in great detail, but this is a whole section on the sanctification of people 
the setting apart of the nation. In chapter 5, he talks about the setting apart, the sacredness of the marriage bond. He talks about in cha- the beginning of chapter 6, that's chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, the sacredness of one's vow before the Lord and how they are to keep that vow, the Nazarite vow, which is a symbol of one's devotion to God. And then following chapter 6, chapter 7, and so you have the dedication and the sanctification of the tabernacle. And between these statements of sanctification is a blessing to be pronounced upon the people whom God has chosen, which is another way of saying God sanctifying and setting apart his people unto himself. And it's really a beautifully crafted blessing. It doesn't come across to us to the degree to which it might because we're reading it in English. But in Hebrew, it's a, uh, it, it sort of conveys a whole other thing. You know, in verse 25 or 24, for example, there's only three words. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha. May the Lord bless you and keep you. That's what he says. Verse 25 is five words. It says, Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha, Ye'er Adonai Panav Elecha v'chunecha. Five words. And the, la- the third phrase in verse 26, the Lord turn his face on you, Yisa Adonai Panav Elecha v'yasem Lecha Shalom. I think it's seven words. The point is, even the words that are used escalate through the promise or the statement in Hebrew. Not only do the words escalate, but the syllables also escalate. In total, there are 15 words in these three verses. Three of those words is the divine name of God. Take a look at verse 24. The Lord bless you. Verse 25. The Lord make his face. Verse 26. The Lord turn his face. Now, if we take out the reference to God, the sacred name of God, we now have 12 words. And of course, this blessing is to be pronounced upon the 12 tribes of Israel. These aren't just happen chance. This is a crafted blessing that is meant to convey that God's blessings grow and grow and grow. They compound and they escalate. And they become more and more significant in our lives as time goes on until that day when we are with him forever. It is a blessing that is to be pronounced upon the people of Israel and is relevant to all people who embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and recognize the Messiah whom he has sent. It's also kind of neat to see that The focus and the subject is God. And so at the front end, it's the Lord who blesses, the Lord who makes, the Lord who turns. And when he makes, blesses, and turns, what does he do? His actions are then follow. He keeps, he forgives, and he extends his peace. It's also interesting to note that when we say the blessing, the Lord bless you, That's the singular you. That isn't like they would say in Texas when I was there in Dallas, you all, you know. It's the singular, the Lord bless you. And so this blessing, though to be pronounced upon the nation, 
we are not to lose sight of the fact that the blessing is for each and every individual Israelite. That God takes note of the individual and doesn't just see the nation as an abstract whole, but he sees the parts as well. In other words, he knows your need as well as the need of the nation. And it is quite unique because when you look at verse 27, even though he has said the Lord bless you individually in verse 27, he says, and they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. And so there's this combination of God's attention upon the individual as well as the nation as a whole. This is a marvelous pronunciation. And it's also kind of neat to take note that this is not an intercessory prayer. In other words, this isn't a request. God doesn't tell the high priest, Aaron in this case and his sons, to pray that I might bless them, to pray that I might keep them to pray that I might cause my face to shine upon them. This, this is a pronouncement of what God has already done and will do and continue to do. Tell them I am blessing them. Tell them I am keeping them. Tell them that my face is being turned towards you. Tell them that I am giving them my peace. And what's remarkable about this is that the Israelites never believed what the high priest would pronounce. For if they had, they would have taken the land and would not have turned their back on God. For they would have been assured that indeed the Lord was blessing us, so let's take the land. The Lord would keep us, so it doesn't matter how many or how big they are. The Lord is giving us his peace, so we know we'll be able to settle in this land. The Lord is turning his eyes toward us and his face toward us and is looking at us with his grace. And therefore, he's giving us a good land, a full land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And it doesn't matter what we have done, for the Lord is one who will be gracious to us, which is another way of saying he will forgive us of our sin. And that was preeminent and prominent. Because it was only a few weeks before that Aaron, while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law, was moved by the insistence of his people to craft a God that they could see and touch and worship. Because what happened to Moses, we have no idea. And so Aaron takes all the gold and all of the precious metals that the people gave him. And he says to Moses, when Moses comes down and sees them worshiping this calf, and when he asks Aaron, what have you done? He said, look, I just took the gold and threw it into the fire and out popped this calf. And so what would you have done? You'd worship it, you know. But what an excuse, you know, threw it in the fire and it just popped out. No, Aaron was engaged in molding it and crafting it and overseeing what it would look like. That was just a few weeks before. And here God is telling them, though they are people who have rebelled against me, tell them my blessing, my grace, and my peace rests upon them. And it will not be too much longer, just a few weeks later, that they will have opportunity to enter the promised land. And they refuse to go. But tell them each and every day, my blessing, my grace, and my peace rests upon them.
That is the nature of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know that many in our churches around the country will say the Old Testament is about law. The New Testament is about grace. The Old Testament is about God who is a God of judgment. The New Testament is a God of grace. Nothing can be further than the truth. Both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament both present God as a God of judgment and a God of grace. If you've never read the book of Revelation, you can see God is a God of judgment. The whole book is devoted to the judgment of God on a, na- on a people, on a world that has rebelled against him. And here, this rings like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he blessed them and forgave them and granted them peace. Because he sent his son to procure all of those things in its ultimate dimensions for you and for I, for me. Now look at verse 24. The first thing we learn is that God is the source of all of these blessings. They are not found anywhere else than in God himself. And the first blessing he provides for them is a blessing of security. He says, I will keep you. There is not a need that he withholds. And whatever he withholds is not a need. Because the Lord promises to keep us. Whatever need we have, he promises to provide. And whatever he doesn't provide, we don't have a need for it. I was sharing the other day, but oftentimes that which we think is our greatest need, our deepest need, is not our deepest need. It is what might be our loudest need, but it's not our deepest need. You know when you are in excruciating pain, how often what occurs is you sort of begin to get confused. You really can't think straight because the pain is too great, the disappointment too deep. And you and I both know that oftentimes our anger then is exhibited and oftentimes against the people that are closest to us, the people that we love the most. Why? Because that which has become our loudest need, the immediate pain, affects really what we know is our deepest need, those whom we love and those who love us. Yeshua exhibits this very same thing, this dynamic in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he prays, Lord, if it's possible, take away this cup from me. That's the loudest need. That was the pain and suffering that was immediate upon his life. That was what was screaming at him. That was about to be unleashed. And so he prays first about the loudest need. Lord, take away this cup if possible. But the deepest need was you and I. And thus he would say, but not my will, but your will be done. In other words, he prayed that he might be spared, but then realized he was more deeply concerned that we might be spared. So the Lord promises to keep us, but that doesn't mean that he will restrain all challenges, all pain, and all despair from our lives. 
But our deepest need oftentimes doesn't appear on the surface and thus is not always our loudest or most prominent. And therefore, whatever need we have, the Lord will provide. And what he does not provide is because it's not really our deepest need. And thus the Lord promises that he would keep us and he would keep his people. He would protect us. And indeed, to the people of Israel and throughout our history, he has demonstrated that he that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So what is he doing? He's keeping us and he is protecting us. And even among our own people where there is a large number who do not know Messiah, he is still keeping us. For there is a remnant, Paul tells us, chosen by his grace. It is he who is keeping us, even as he states he would. Not only is this a prayer or an exclamation, a proclamation of God's promise to secure us, but look at verse 24. It's also his promise to save us. And thus when he says he would be gracious to us, preeminent, I think, on the mind of Moses, is that he would forgive us of our waywardness and he would forgive us of our sin. He would provide that ultimate means of redemption and atonement for us. Tonight at Rosh Hashanah, we start the Yom HaNorayim, the 10, the days of awe, days of reflection. And I've, I, I, th I hope everyone has received one. I prepared a, a little devotional that will take you through the week to reflect on our state of affairs and how God has provided a final atonement for our sin. His grace is sufficient unto us. His sacrificial love has been extended and has always been extended to his people. And thus he blesses them. When God created the world and placed Adam and Eve in the garden, it says in the very first chapter that he then blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. When he called Abraham, his grace was seen in that he called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans. And he tells them, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, and those that bless you will be blessed. And God himself says, and I will bless you. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is going to say to the people of Israel, God has now presented you with the blessings and the curses. Choose life. Choose the blessings that you might live under the shadow of his wings and in the sphere of his delights and his joys toward us. And so he says, the Lord be gracious to you. The Lord forgive you of your sin. And not only does he make this pronouncement about security and about salvation, but then he makes this pronouncement about shalom. Look at verse 26. And give you peace. This idea of the Lord turning his face upon you is an expression that means that the Lord would find delight in you, that the Lord would rejoice over you. 
that the Lord would look upon us and be made happy by the life that he sees that we are living before him. And thus, as the Lord's delight is exhibited, he then extends to us, he says, his shalom, his peace. That is in a sense of all difficulties are somehow erased or all conflict ends. The idea of shalom in the scripture is a sense of wholeness, of well-being, being at harmony with God, being united to him. So preeminent in this statement, I think, is the idea that we would no longer be enemies with God, but we would be united to him, walking with him. Like it says of Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, like it says of Enoch who walked with God and was not for God had taken him. Like the disciples who are invited to walk, to follow the Lord. And as you and I are encouraged to do the same, to walk in his ways. Paul makes this clear in the book of Ephesians where we are to walk in the ways of God and in the way that he directs. And then he concludes by saying, and so they will put my name, so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. The mark of the Israelites is not the law. The mark of the Israelites is God himself on his people. I will put my name upon them. I will identify myself with them. That's significant ramifications for our own day and age, doesn't it? Especially as we see of what's transpiring in North Africa, in the Middle East, and in parts of, of Asia, and indeed around the world. God's name is placed on his, on his people. And thus to be at war with them is only to call down the judgment of God upon oneself. But in a more cosmic and perhaps deeper sense than that, everything that the priests were to bless the Israelites and the people with were the things that Messiah denied himself that we might experience them. Look at verse 24. The blessing of the Lord is pronounced upon us, but on our Messiah on that faithful, fateful day, the curses of God were unleashed, and he bore our sin. In verse 24, the blessing is that the Lord would keep us and protect us. But in the case of Messiah on that fateful day, he was not protected, and he was not kept. But rather, the forces of evil and the evil one had full sway with him on that occasion, and he took upon our sin on our behalf. If you look at verse 25, the prayer is that, and the proclamation is that the Lord would make his face to shine upon us, but on that day, the Lord turned his face from his son. And we read how there was darkness over the earth for those hours that he was bearing our sin. And the Shekinah glory receded from him for the face of our God was turned from him. If you look at verse 25, the proclamation is that the Lord would be gracious to us. 
But he was not gracious to his son as his son bore our sin and carried our sorrows. If you look at verse 26, the proclamation is that the Lord was tur- would turn his face upon us. But the Lord would not heed whatever cries might come. And he bore our sin. And then finally in verse 6, it says that we would experience peace. But the Lord experienced suffering and alienation from his father. It is a mystery of mysteries indeed how the Lord has done this for us in a point in time and space some 2,000 years ago. That's the mystery of it all. But this is what the Lord has done for us. That this blessing that is pronounced would be our experience. That the Lord would bless us and keep us And that the Lord would make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. And that the Lord would turn his face toward us and give us peace. That his name would be inscribed upon our hearts. And that our lives would be a manifestation and reflection of what he has done for us. And thus Messiah has promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. And he promised that he would grant us his spirit who would guide us and fill us and direct us and be that connection, as it were, between himself and us. And thus, here we are this morning giving him all praise that we can. And so it's imperative That as every Sunday, every time we gather for worship and the benediction is pronounced, this is a statement of affairs of what is and what will be forever. The Lord's goodness is upon you. And thus, all we need to do is make it known and live it out in the world that we are placed in. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are now turning our attention in these few moments to the observance of the Lord's Supper in which you, O Lord, our Messiah, have instructed us to do this in remembrance of you. And so, Lord, we've had opportunity to think about your word to us And this great statement of blessing that rests upon us. And it's possible because of what Messiah has done for us. And so, Lord, in these moments, as we prepare to partake of these elements, the juice that represents the shed blood of Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the unleavened bread that represents the sinlessness of our Lord who obeyed perfectly the will of God. Lord, we do this as unto you. So might our hearts be stirred by what you have done for us. And in these moments, we would pause 
to confess to you our fallenness. Like the Israelites of old, we too are weak and we too fail to walk in your ways as we should. But your grace has come to bear on our lives. And thus there is forgiveness found in the Lord. So John tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, if there is anyone here who has never had their sin forgiven, I pray that they might call out to Messiah and simply acknowledge that he has provided us with that forgiveness. And for those of us who know of it, may we be determined to live in light of it. And may we be devoted to bringing the light of life to those that we encounter. And so, Lord, minister to each one, I pray, in these moments. We pray in Messiah's name.